Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Since I started Wonder Media Network, I've really come to realize how much I didn't learn in school about the role of women in American history. Luckily, there are lots of books out there that can help fill the gaps. I listen on Audible. Whether you want to stay up to date with the latest political must-reads, or you want to escape politics altogether, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. I'm currently switching off between The Woman's Hour and Crazy Rich Asians. Sometimes you need a little of both. You can get a free audiobook of your choosing if you go to audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. I'm Mary Harris. I'm the host of Slate's new daily news podcast, What Next? And I have a question for you. Do you ever get a push notification or a news alert on Twitter and think, no, stop the news. I want to get off. Then What Next is the podcast for you. Each afternoon, we're going to break down that headline you've seen your friends retweeting all day and tell you what matters, what doesn't, and what next. Just look for What Next on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. See you there. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. We work on macro issues and we work on the macaroni and cheese issues. When women are in the halls of power, our national debate reflects the needs and dreams of American families. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. A record number of women are running for office this year. We're telling their stories. We're also looking at why there are so few women in office to begin with, and how our government might be different if it looked more like the people it represents. The election is just a week away, and some candidates have a distinct advantage. They're already in office. Incumbents win elections the vast majority of the time. So far this season, we've been focusing on candidates who are running for positions they've never held. Today, we're going to focus instead on a woman who's running to keep her seat. Sherry Bustos. I guess you don't need spelling on podcasts, right? I don't need spelling. (laughs) Uh, My title is I'm a congresswoman from the 17th District of Illinois. Sherry was born in 1961, 45 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress, and 41 years after women first won the right to vote. Grew up in Springfield, Illinois, land of Lincoln. I lived there until I went away to school. I have a had a wonderful dad and have a wonderful mom. I had a wonderful brother and I have a wonderful sister. That's all part of, I guess, my story, the fact that I don't have a brother anymore and I don't have a dad anymore. But so grew up in Springfield, played sports all the time, anytime we could. We always had a ball in our hands, loved sports. And it's probably a big part of this competitive 
spirit that I've had since I was a very little girl and still have it, which fits in pretty well with being in politics. Sherry wasn't the first person in her family to enter the world of politics. Her father had worked as a columnist and then behind the scenes for a number of politicians who were often around Sherry's house growing up. I was very, very close to my dad. He was uh, had a, somewhat of a similar career to mine. He was a journalist. For him, his family, politics, and sports were about everything. Sports were big in Sherry's family. She continued playing through college. When she graduated, she decided to pursue a career in journalism. See, I went to a small liberal arts school called Illinois College in Jacksonville, Illinois, and I played basketball and volleyball. Then I went to University of Maryland, then moved back to Illinois and got my master's in journalism from University of Illinois at Springfield. And that is what eventually took me to the area where I still live. I live in a town called Moline, Illinois. We call it the Quad Cities. Kind of an interesting fact about the Quad Cities. There are five Quad Cities. We, <laughs> we like to do things kind of uniquely. I got my start in my journalism career in Springfield. I covered the state legislature and wrote for four newspapers throughout the state, one of which ended up hiring me, and that's how I ended up in uh, the Quad Cities. Started out as a rookie cop reporter, met a rookie cop not too long after I started at the Quad City Times, and that ended up being my husband, who today is the sheriff of Rock Island County. I've lived there ever since, so we've been there for more than 33 years now. Wow. Yeah. Real power couple, sheriff and congresswoman. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, believe me, we started out very, very simple beginnings. You know, I made $16,500 a year as this police reporter. He was making about 17000 I still remember when we looked at our, our W-2s when we were first married. It's like, oh, my gosh, I don't know how we're ever going to make ends meet. But, you know, we manage. We've raised three boys. They're all grown now. Like many of the women we've featured on this show, Sherry was initially driven to run because of policies that were directly affecting her family and her community. She'd already been elected to the city council in East Moline, but her eyes turned towards D.C. I only had one brother. He's three years older than I, the only boy in our family. He was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. He was a baseball coach at Southern Illinois University. He had good insurance. You know, if you work for a university, you typically have good insurance. But what the doctors told him he needed in order to stay alive, the treatment, his insurance wouldn't cover. And all of this was happening at the same time as the Tea Party movement was really taking off. And if you remember, the major motivation for the Tea Party movement was getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. They just didn't like this idea that we would insure virtually everybody in this country. So my brother was on his deathbed when the Tea Party movement of 2010, when that election came to pass, and the region where I live had elected a guy to Congress who ran on the abolishing the Affordable Care Act and was elected on the Tea Party movement. My brother died within a week of that election, and literally it was within months after that that I started talking about running for Congress. The issue of health care remains a powerful driver for women stepping up to run this election. Here's Christine Matthews. She's a political pollster. So in some of these special elections and also in the Virginia statewide election in 2017, the number one issue, according to exit polls after the election, was health care. So what we're finding is a number of these women candidates like Abigail Spanberger in Virginia 7. That's episode seven of our podcast. And I think even your mom. And that's episode one and others are running not just as a reaction to the Trump administration, but also 
because they feel like there is a significant threat to healthcare coverage, pre-existing conditions, affordability. Healthcare is a real motivator for some of these Democratic women, in particular running for Congress, but also for women voters to turn out. Sherry was fired up, and she was thinking seriously about running. Still, she initially decided she couldn't make it happen. The first conversation I had about running for office was in March of 2011. So keep in mind, that was only three months after this Tea Party guy was sworn in. He hadn't been in that long, but it was long enough for me to see what his voting record was. He voted against the Violence Against Women's Act. He voted against funding for an Amtrak route that was going to come to our community, getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, all that. So I was motivated. (laughs) Believe me, I was... It's like, man, we got to put a stop to this. So I had it in me to want to make some changes. So I had conversations with folks about it. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee was talking with me because they wanted to figure out who was going to run. It took me about a month to get back to them and say I wasn't going to be able to do it. Sherry had left journalism after 17 years, and she then worked in healthcare for a decade. Her job paid well, so leaving to run for Congress would mean a big financial hit for her family. When you're running for Congress, it is not a part-time deal. You've got to raise money to make sure you have the resources to get your messaging out. My congressional district is very large. It's 7,000 square miles, 14 counties, goes all the way to the Wisconsin line, goes into central Illinois, the western borders, the Mississippi River. It's very big. So to get every place that you need to go to make sure you have the resources to win this, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to do this for five hours a week or 10 hours a week. You got to do it full time. So I tried to figure out, could I quit my job? Well, we figured out financially we couldn't afford to do that. My husband was not overly excited about it because the political atmosphere was pretty nasty at that time. So I got back to the folks at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and I said I was not going to be able to work it out. So they began talking to other people. In the interim, there were some people who decided to run, and actually some really good people made a decision to run. And my sister, who I'm very close with, she's two years older than I am, she said, I heard that you were asked to run for Congress. I hadn't told her about any of this at the time because I didn't want it to get out. And I said, well, I can tell you now, yes, I was looking at it, but I just can't figure it out. And she goes, why? And I said, well, I can't figure out the money part of it, how I'm going to make a living, Jerry is not overly excited about it. And she goes, we will figure this out. You have to do this. You were made to do this. Thanks to her sister's push, Sherry figured out a way to make it work. To my sister's credit, we figured out I would get a consulting job. I would have to work some. My income was cut probably by about three-fourths, but it was enough for me. We've never lived over our heads or anything, so it was enough for me to pay our bills. Basically, that's all I cared about as long as I'd have enough money to pay our bills. And my husband, I finally went to him and I said, Jerry, I just feel like I have to do this. He goes, I figured you'd get to that point anyway. So we worked out the things that were big roadblocks. My kids at the time were in college or out. I didn't have little kids at home at the time, so I didn't have to navigate all of that. But a lot of women do when they're looking at these kind of things. And that really does fall more to women than to men still when they're looking at running for office. Sherry ran and she won. That feeling in that first race, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, like nothing like it. It was so exciting. I didn't know whether I was going to win or lose because the polling 
I was down by double digits just a few months before the election. I mean, like a real big deficit. And as the race got closer and the last polls showed me either up one or up two or down one or two. So it just depends on what what poll we looked at. So I didn't know if I was going to win or lose. I knew we did everything we could to be successful. I know that nobody coasted into this. We worked very, very hard. So on election night, I ended up winning by six points. So pretty good feeling. It was, yeah. it, was, it, was a, it was a great feeling. This election looks much different for Sherry than her first. Being an incumbent changes the game. The uphill battle she fought in her first election now works to her advantage. If you follow politics, you know it's hard to defeat a sitting member of Congress. It, by the nature, it's just hard. And our district is a true swing district. But I made the decision I was going to run, and that's how I ended up in Congress. I defeated this guy who came in on this Tea Party movement. So that was in 2012 when I was elected, and today I'm running for my fourth term. For more on the benefits of being an incumbent, here's Amanda Lippman. Amanda's the co-founder of Run for Something, an organization that works with young people running for local office for the first or second time. Amanda previously worked on the Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigns. Incumbents start out with a platform. Anything an incumbent says can become news because they're an elected official or in government. They have a network of donors and activists and supporters and staff who will help them. And I think most importantly, they've done this before. Politics is like anything else, something that takes practice to be good at. The more you've done it, usually the better you are at it. It's rare that you find someone who will win their election first time around because it takes time to build the skills, the network, and the, the talent to be able to win. So as an incumbent, you've already got a leg up. As an elected official, you may be able to sway people you otherwise wouldn't have necessarily reached. Here's Julie Dolan. Julie's a professor of political science at McAllister College. Once you're in that seat, once you're an incumbent, you get reelected most of the time. You know, and that's because generally you have better name recognition than whoever's going to run against you. You have an opportunity to do things for constituents back in the district. And so you're able to even sway some members of the opposite party over to your side because you helped them out with something. You navigated the federal bureaucracy for them, or you listened to them, or you just did something that endeared you to these individuals, and then they turn out to vote for you. Incumbents also have a leg up when it comes to fundraising. Here's Kate Catherall. Kate is a senior partner and co-founder of The Arena, an organization that holds summits for politically interested people and supports campaigns. Its mission is to convene, train, and support the next generation of civic leaders in order to create a more equitable and inclusive society. Kate previously worked on campaigns all over the country. So there's absolutely no doubt about the advantage of being an incumbent. It is huge. We found that in 2016, incumbents raised more than twice the average total contribution rate at the federal level. The average was somewhere around $650,000 if you're running for Congress. The average for an incumbent was closer to $1.5 million. It definitely shakes out in the data in terms of fundraising, which again is sort of a metric of viability that points to everything else. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. One is that the party and those institutional players are very loss averse, right? So if we have a seat, we want to keep it. I think that that's a natural human thing, but it just results in more resources going where we think it's a sure bet, right? The other thing that's probably more intuitive is that we also just have networks of relationships if you're an incumbent. The things that you have access to, the people who you know, 
the donors, frankly, who you know, the bundlers who you know, once you've been elected, it's a much larger list of people and a much larger list of powerful people who can help you. People talk about the establishment or having the connections to run for office. You absolutely don't need those things to run. And I think what you're seeing right now is an ecosystem emerging for people who do not have that, who aren't born into a network of wealthy donors and establishment connections and relationships. But it certainly makes it a lot easier. When women run for office, they generally win at the same rates as men in comparable races. That means women who are incumbents tend to win at the same rate as men in the same position. That being said, there's some evidence that shows that women are actually challenged more often as incumbents than men are. Here's Julie Dolan again. There's some research that suggests that incumbent women are more likely to be challenged in their own party primaries than our incumbent men. That suggests that once they get there, they might have to fight a little bit harder to stay in office. But ultimately, the end result is that they have re-election rates that are very comparable to their male colleagues. They have more primary competition, and there's also evidence that there's more primary competition in the opposing party's primary. What I read into that is that women seem like an easy target, that because they stand out already, if they're different from the normal person that serves or what we've normalized is what our politicians look like, it's perceived by people as how good can she be at this job? You know, a woman in office, it doesn't have maybe the same sort of cachet as a man in office, or it doesn't, seems to be less intimidating for other candidates for whatever reason. I think it's women are not taking it seriously as men. While we're on the topic of incumbent advantages, it's important to note that many of the women who are running this election are running as challengers. That means people should temper their expectations when it comes to how many of those women will likely win. Here's Debbie Walsh. She's the director of the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University. I think what's a little different this time than in 1992, 1992, we had a lot of open seats for Congress, and we had a lot of women who were already in office who were then running so we had state legislators who ran for a lot of those congressional seats, and that's who won at the end of the day. We have a lot of real newcomers to politics this time, and a lot of women who are running as challengers, which is a little bit of part of our caution story here, which is that it's rough to run as a challenger. Incumbents win about 90% of the time. So those women are really in some serious uphill battles. Amanda Hunter also urged caution. She's the communications director for the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. This is such an exciting year and we are optimistic, but it seems like there's a lot of stories and a lot of conversations that can be a little bit hyperbolic and say, it's the next year of the woman. It's going to be amazing. All these women are winning and women are. But the reality is a lot of the candidates are challenging incumbents. They're in races that they may not win, and there are factors other than gender that are going to influence their success or not success. And so I want to make sure that as we all think about it, that we all can keep kind of a grounded view of the situation, which I know in this news cycle can be challenging. Incumbents are able to run on their actual record, not just on campaign pledges. Here's Sherry Bustos again. There is a difference between being a challenger when you're running against an incumbent, and now that I'm an incumbent myself, it's easier to get kind of that standard support that everybody was fighting for when there's a primary election. 
those who get involved in politics are trying to figure out, well, do I support this woman or this guy or this other person over here? And everything seemed like a battle to try to win that early support. So that support that I took a while to get, now many folks like, for instance, in organized labor see that I believe in organized labor. My voting record shows that I believe in organized labor. I want to help working men and women. So that support is there, and I don't have to... That's not a constant fight like it was the first race. Sherry still remembers that fight well. Now she's working to help get others elected. She came up with the idea for an organization called Build the Bench that serves as a boot camp for potential candidates to learn how to run for office. Sherry's paid for the program out of her leadership pack. Well, the first election's the hardest because everything is new to you. I have never done anything in my life where you have so many highs and so many lows. It can be in a single day. It can be in a week. But everything is like smushed together, the highs and the lows, and they are pretty severe. Like there's all of a sudden an attack ad that comes out that seems very unfair. Or you get an endorsement that you're very, very excited about. Or there's an outside group that comes in and they want to help you. You just don't know what's going to be around the corner. A couple of thoughts that I have for people who are looking at this. One of my favorite books is something called The Four Agreements. And it's written by this guy named Don Miguel Ruiz. And it's basically these four life lessons that if you follow this, then your life will end up in a good place. One of those four agreements is don't take things personally. I can't stress that enough how important that is in politics, because it can be a really nasty line of work, especially for women. I don't know any women who have run, especially for a higher level office, who doesn't face comments about things that don't matter as far as how they do their job, but things like your hair, your makeup, your clothes, your body, whether you are a mom, whether you are married, if you are married and you do have kids, why are you doing this? And I mean, just all of these kind of things. And if you took all of that personally, you'd end up in that corner over there, balled up and crying all the time. So you just have to separate these comments from who you are. So in my family, we're, we're pretty tough on each other. We're brutally frank. And I think that helped me be pretty tough. And same thing with playing sports my whole life. You understand about winning and losing and how you deal with that. You just really have to um, say, that's not who I am. I know that I have the right reason for wanting to run for office. I know that I work very hard on behalf of the people I represent. I know that I try to cast votes that I have reasoned through. My North Star is the right thing. It's to help people, to help families, to help our community. They're going to say what they're going to say, and you just cannot let that bother you. I think women are not as good at saying, I, I'm just not going to let that bother me. And think about social media. When people are sitting at home and there's nobody else around and they want to make these comments, whatever they may be, you've got to be able to just say, you know what, okay, it's just going to be out there. Sherry's been on both sides of the recruitment process. She says she's found real differences in the reactions of men and women when they were approached to run. For women, especially if they have younger kids, the first question they'll have is, what about your family? How do you do this? How do you go out to Washington? One of my closest friends in Congress is a woman named Grace Meng from New York, and she has two young boys. She was elected the same time I was. 
So I will usually ask Grace to talk with one of the women who were looking to ask to run for office, and she'll talk through with them. Let me tell you about some of the things that she manages. We'll get called for votes when we're out in Washington, and we're in the same office building. And we'll be walking from our office building over to the Capitol, and she'll have her kids, she'll be FaceTiming with them, doing homework. She's talking all the way from the office over to the House floor. She'll go on the House floor, she'll cast her votes, and then she'll go back to the the back room and continue doing homework with them. And she brings them out during the summer. They go to camp in Washington with her. She'll bring them on the House floor. When we have dinner together, we have a group of women that we get together for dinner eh, either once a week or once every other week. She brings her boys there. So she manages, but it's not easy. It's not easy, but I think the best way that we can help recruit women to run for office is to show how other women have come before them and how they've made that work. And Congresswoman Grace Meng is a very good example of children and how she's made that work for. You have to be creative. I tell women all the time, have a good partner. A good partner is absolutely critical when you're in politics. My husband and I have been, you know, we always co-parented. He has done more at home than I have. He does all of our cooking. I clean up afterwards, but he cooks. He does our laundry. I put it away. I did the bills for the first 10 years we were married, and then he's done it ever since. So we literally have worked it out. Two people with very busy careers, raising three sons, we were able to work it out because we always did it together. And that's really important if you're going to go into to politics. But here's the other thing. If somebody's a single parent, I would not want to discourage them from doing this too. When I worked in healthcare, we had a board member She brought her young girls to all of the board meetings. They would either sit in the back. If there was something confidential, they would just go kind of out in another little area where there were other adults who could keep an eye on them. But they got to see their mom as a leader in the community. And we didn't care that she brought her young girls. In fact, it was kind of nice. It actually adds to civility in conversations when you have kids who are watching you. If, If there's a woman listening to this, Whatever her circumstances are, if she wants to get involved in politics, there are ways and there's plenty of women, like I said before, who have come before us who can talk through this. It's one of my passions is recruiting women to run for office and young people to run for office and people of color to run for office because those are all areas where we are so desperately underrepresented. Sherry says she thinks all levels of government would be significantly better if they more accurately reflected the makeup of our communities. I think it would be an entirely different place. I think going to Washington, D.C. would feel entirely different from a civility perspective, from a bipartisan perspective, from the kind of legislation that we would work together to pass. I have a hard time believing that we wouldn't have comprehensive immigration reform because that's a very important issue. I have a hard time believing that we ever would have babies taken out of the arms of people who are seeking asylum and escaping violence and rape and murder and gang violence from their home countries. I doubt very seriously that the rampant self-dealing and corruption that we're seeing right now would be going on. I think it would be a much, much different place. I think that bipartisanship would be the norm. The education that we have in All 50 states would be delivered at a level that was funded adequately no matter where people live, no matter what their zip code is. 
because we understand how important it is for kids to do well in their lives. I don't think that we would be arguing over the importance of making sure that there's no kids who are going to bed hungry. I think we would be a much different country and a much better country if Congress truly reflected the makeup from gender, age, occupation, ethnicity, race, all of that, if it reflected the makeup of our country. I can't even imagine how much better the place would be. Here's Amanda Lippman again. Well, the thing I think about a lot is how the tenor of conversation would change. Imagine how the conversation about paid family leave would be different if there were more working moms in the room, or the conversation about criminal justice reform if there were more people of color in the room in the first place, or if the conversation about infrastructure would be different if there were more people who lived in rural communities or more people who lived in cities, and the same thing is true. The people in the room determine the legislative priorities, and if their lived experience doesn't make them care about one thing more than another, we're all going to have this very similar sort of output. We also know that diverse teams do better. We get better legislating and better outcomes when there are people from different backgrounds and part of the conversation. Specifically when it comes to gender parity, Sherry says more women in Congress would lead to more attention paid to issues that are important to women, children, and families. Studies show that women in office tend to work on those issues more than their male counterparts. This election could help usher more women onto the House floor. Here's Kate Catherall again. I think it is the silver lining to what has been a really tough few years that we are seeing so many women coming out of the woodwork and stepping up and saying, if not now, when, and if not me, who. That is literally a phrase that I have heard uttered by probably a dozen women candidates. And I think that like from a really big picture perspective, if we're kind of zooming out and looking at the arc of history and just maybe even looking at sort of our own lifetimes, I think people really will remember this year and really the years following Trump's election as a time in which women stepped up and basically channeled their anger into something productive and demanded to be heard and demanded to, as cliche as the phrase is, have a seat at the table. You know, when you look at our elected bodies, the statistics are really sad and people have heard them. These are not new, but 23% of Congress is women, even though we make up half the country. Only 6% of federal legislators are women of color. Only 8% of state legislators are women of color. I think we're going to see a lot of that change this year if not just by sort of sheer force of numbers, by the quality of the campaigns that these women are running. We know that women also tend to work across the aisle more. Sherry says that's as true on the House floor as it is on the softball field. I'm on the Congressional Women's Softball Team, and I've played on that since I was first elected. It's Democrats and Republicans. It's House members and senators. And we play one game a year. But we practice for months. I mean, it shows a little bit about our athletic ability, but we practice at 7 in the morning. We are literally, you know, getting there. Maybe we've not even combed our hair. We're wearing our sweatpants and T-shirts. And we talk about our families, about our kids, about legislation. We talk about everything. It's just like anybody in a workmate and just the kind of things that you would talk about. And what I like about our structure is that we are bipartisan, we are bicameral, as opposed to the men's baseball team, where you have Democrats that play against Republicans. The men don't even come together 
on the baseball field. Our opponent on the softball game is the Women's Washington Press Corps. But an example would be there's uh, Christy Nome, who is now running for uh, governor in South Carolina. It was my freshman year. I had just been elected. I'm on the Ag Committee. She was on the Ag Committee. And ethanol was an important issue for her. It was an important issue for me. And there were some legislative issues that we needed to resolve. And so she and I worked together on a bipartisan letter that we sent. And had I not had that relationship, I wouldn't have known to go to her to work that out. And it was because of that relationship. I've gotten to be good friends with Shelley Moore Capito, who's a Republican senator for West Virginia. I mean, our politics are probably not incredibly in sync, but I like her and consider her a friend. And again, you can go all over the infield. We have Kirsten Gillibrand, who's the pitcher. We have Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's the second baseman. Martha Roby, a Republican from Alabama, is the first baseman. I'm in the shortstop. You literally have this mix of people who are very different politically, but we have formed a bond. And I think that's healthy. Sherry has also found it important to have close friends in her own party. Then on a more personal end, um, there's a group of us that we were all elected at the same time that we are very, very close. There's six of us all together. One of our chiefs of staff named us the Pink Ladies because we ended up all wearing pink suits to one of the State of the Unions. But it's Grace Meng, who I mentioned earlier from New York, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, Annie Custer from New Hampshire, Julia Brownlee from California, and Lois Frankel from Florida. So we represent the East Coast, the West Coast, the South. I'm the Midwest. We range in age from our 40s to our 70s now. And we have this total trust. We know that everything we talk about will never go any further. Nobody's ever betrayed that. It's not just legislative ideas that we talk about, but it's, you know, for instance, Grace now is the vice chair of the DNC. Lois runs the Women Lead Program to recruit women to run for office. Catherine is one of the co-chairs of recruitment. I did that last cycle. Annie Custer works with the members who are in these tough districts. So we're all doing different things in, in leadership positions, and we're all there for each other. It's very important to making Washington, which can be sometimes an unbearable place, makes it a good place to be when you have close friends like that. This may be Sherry's fourth congressional election, but she says this time feels different. You know what feels different is not only that we have a record number of women, and we have a lot of younger people, and as you said, people from communities of color, we just this great, diverse uh, group of folks running. But what feels different is the enthusiasm this election cycle. It feels very, very different than 2016. I traveled all over the country, went to, what, 22 different congressional districts, traveled about 20,000 miles campaigning for different people. And the feeling this election cycle is very, very different. I just talked to a Democrat who's running in a more Republican-leaning district, and they had a 1,000 volunteers on the ground. I mean, that, that's, like, amazing. They had, like, a little call time room where they were making telephone calls. They had 40 people on a Saturday that came in on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. People are getting involved. They are worked up about this craziness that is happening in Washington, D.C., the outrage of the day that seems to come out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue via tweets. And there are people who have sat it out who just aren't going to sit it out. And they realize how much is at stake. I think we have about 30% of the population on any given day that will be supportive of President Trump pretty much no matter what. I mean, that's been very consistent. But the way I like to look at that is that means there are 70% of the people who, if we do what we can to be honest and forthright and good people and 
tell people what we are about, look them in the eye, then those are people that we can win back. We're just one week out from Election Day. If you've been meaning to get involved and haven't yet, now's the time. I know it can feel intimidating to volunteer, but don't be overwhelmed by the task. You can go online and sign up to help. Any campaign will be thrilled to have you. Every place I go now, I look at the countdown clock and how many days it is to the election. And then I add a day and I said, don't wake up on that next day and feel that you have left anything on the field. If you could have knocked one more door, made one more call, donated one more dollar, asked one more person to get out and vote, don't have any of those regrets. There is way too much at stake for our families, for our children, for our country, for our world to sit out anything this election cycle. When people do sit things out, I think we can see what the result is. I guess my closing thought is better days are ahead. I feel it coming. Later this week, we're going to bring you the story of a woman who's likely to make history this election. My name is Deb Holland. I am the Democratic nominee for New Mexico's first congressional district. I hope I win, and I hope that other Native women will be inspired to run and feel like they have a chance. This isn't the first time Native women have run for office. There have been a number of women who have run for a congressional seat in the past and haven't won. More on that coming to you on Thursday. A quick reminder to check and see if early voting is available in your state. Vote early. Skip the lines. In some states, like North Carolina, you can actually register at the polls or fix any errors in your registration if you vote early. But you can't do that if you go to vote on Election Day. Let's make our voices heard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends. If you didn't, let me know. I really do want to hear from you. This movement is all about starting conversations and learning from people with different perspectives. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. Follow us on Instagram at WMN.media or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you on Thursday. If you really can't get enough of the midterms, check out these two other podcasts from our friends at MidPod and Two Broads Talking Politics. This is the MidPod, the midterms podcast. I'm Nisi Panetta. And I'm Heather Atwood. We are two progressive moms traveling America to chronicle what may well be the most important set of elections of our lifetime. We'll introduce you to the amazing candidates running for Congress and who we think put country over party. And you're invited to the citizen's potluck we hold in every district. There's no doubt our democracy is in trouble. We've got to pay attention and get involved. Change and reform can happen in a healthy way in this country if we vote in the midterm elections. So tune in every Tuesday to the MidPod and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Kelly. And I'm Sophie. We're, We're two, two broads talking, talking politics. politics. 
We're two Midwestern moms who love politics. We've always been Democrats, but we got more politically active after the 2016 debacle. On our episodes, we talk to activists and candidates and authors and directors of nonprofits. To help us all figure out, where do we go from here? Check us out at twobroadstalkingpolitics.com. Or anywhere podcasts are found. Thank you.